Welcome to the Neighbors Church Podcast. Shua here, and we're in a series right now called Our Father. We're learning together to pray the way that Jesus taught his disciples. Now, this past Sunday, I did forget our USB recorder to record our Sunday gathering, so I had to record it on my phone. So I'm here to repent uh, for the quality of sound that you're about to experience but also to encourage you that despite the low quality of sound, this is a high quality teaching. And whatever the Spirit wants to speak to you through this teaching is so worth listening through this. It was a potent and relevant and timely word um, for our moment in uh, our city and in the world and in our lives. So um, I hope you're blessed by this still. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Let that joy come forward today in these saints as we lament 
loss as we lament the brokenness of this world. But true gladness, true joy, is the ability not to be absent of these things, but aware of these things, to pray these things in the hopes and promises of the kingdom of God. Bless us now. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Yeah, so this last Monday, uh, I had a rather sweet and somewhat rare time in the Lord where I awoke to my regular times of silence and prayer. And it was just one of those, like I said, rare mornings where everything went so well. I settled that my coffee, my pour over was absolutely perfect. I just nailed it. And as I sat there sipping on the coffee, I entered into a time of silence and my whole body just was overcome with a deep, relaxed peace as I was just trusting and surrendering everything to God and his loving presence. My prayers weren't janky and angsty and upset. They were flowing with gratitude. And many of your faces would come to my mind through that morning's time of prayer. I'd offer you up to the king and I could feel him. I could sense him saying yes and amen to that prayer for that one. Yes and amen to that prayer for that one. In every sense of the word, that morning my prayer time was literally heavenly. It was heavenly. Now, after my Monday morning prayer times, next up my to-do list on Monday morning, party with the curtain to dance life. Monday is a huge admin day for me. And so on Monday mornings, I have to prepare myself for all the life-giving, joy-giving functions of being a church, like scheduling, budgeting, record-keeping, Excel spreadsheeting, basically keeping this 501c3 legal in the eyes of the, the federal government. Uh, it, it makes me break out in hives, but I have to do it. And so I got into my email after this heavenly time of prayer and contemplation, and I was immediately confronted with a list of to-dos that I did not want to do in an overcrowded calendar, just like the rest of you. And it was a very abrupt fall from this place of deep peace and contemplation right into the earth and all that the earth has on offer for us. And then it got worse. Even though I always tell myself, don't do it, Dan, don't do it, don't do it, I get a weekly or a daily summary of the New York Times. And anytime I get into my email on Monday morning, I tell myself, not until you've done your day, can you read the news? And every single time I break the rule and I read the news. Now, on this particular morning, follow the trajectory here, heavenly contemplation, free-flowing prayer, Jesus saying yes and amen, smashing down into to-dos and scheduling and keeping a 501c3 legal in the eyes of the, of the government. And then I open up my email and I read this. The New World Order. This is the opening of the Times news for me. Russia has started the largest war in Europe since World War II. China has become more bellicose, which just means aggressive, toward Taiwan. India has embraced a virulent nationalism. Israel has formed the most extreme government in its history. And on Saturday morning, Hamas brazenly attacked Israel, launching thousands of missiles and publicly kidnapping and killing civilians. All of these developments are signs that the world may have fallen into a new period of disarray. Countries and political groups like Hamas are willing to take big risks rather than fearing that the consequences would be too dire. The simplest explanation is that the world is in the midst of a transition to a new order that, ex that experts describe with the word multipolar. Multipolar. Now the article went on to say and argue that multipolar and this new world order is essentially the, the result of the United States no longer holding the dominant position of power that it once was. And there has been no senior power player that has risen up on the scene in the global scenario. And so as a result, political leaders 
in many places are feeling more emboldened to assert their own interests, believing the benefit of aggressive action is going to outweigh the costs. Now, the article went on to quote war experts, and most of them were portending. They were forecasting more trouble on the horizon for the global scene, even the possibilities of global due to this new, unstable, multipolar order in which we exist. Zhang Yongmian, he's a Chinese political scientist, he's actually pretty deeply in cahoots with the leadership of China. He described the old world order as disintegrating, saying, countries now are brimming with ambition, like tigers, eyeing their prey, keen to find every opportunity among the ruins of the old order. Now, the article went on to leave social, political, economic commentary, just trying to explain how we have arrived at this destabilized moment. But as I read on through every word, I was looking somewhere for it, and here's the hope. Here's the solution. And it never came. And so, on my Monday morning, from the heavenly abode in prayer and silence and solitude, through my emails, through this dystopian article, I closed my computer, and I literally felt my whole body just crumb, like ache, like deeply ache. For the anarchy around us, human agony that some of you are enduring today, many of our brothers and sisters across the globe are enduring. And I closed my eyes in an attempt to recapture that heavenly peace that I've been reveling in literally only 15 minutes prior to opening that stupid email. And Jesus answered my lament. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Dear friends, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, at least I hope I'm not. I'm not a fringe internet personality by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm definitely not the guy standing on the street corner with that huge placard reading, you know, repent, the end is near. But what I want to tell you for certain is that I am utterly committed and convinced as an apprentice of Jesus Christ. And Jesus warned us, he told us, that this would be the way of our world before his return. There is indeed a one that much of humanity is completely oblivious to, while some of us ache for it in ways that we cannot put words to. And prior to this coming new world order's arrival, this current order that we live in, it will continue to destabilize, it will continue to cannibalize, and it will continue to self-destruct, according to the prophecies of this backwater nobody Galilean rabbi 2,000 years ago. And so we have to ask the question, are our news feeds from the last five years, even the last 10 years, I would say even over the last 50 years, are our news feeds signs of the times? Are these endless reports of wars, rumors of wars, plagues, earthquakes, famines, are they signs that Jesus is returning soon? Certainly. Absolutely. Without question. You know, I'm reminded briefly, I have notes here for a moment, of when I first became a Christian. I was utterly convinced by the teachings of Jesus that he could return that day while I was reading the Bible. I would approach my Bible and my times of prayer like, I could close my eyes, and according to Jesus, I could open my eyes, and I could be with him. I don't know how that drifted from my center of existence, but it has been restored in full as of late, where 
I find myself aching and groaning and saying that, yes, not in any fanatical way, unequivocally, the signs of the times are appearing to be ramping up in line exactly with what Jesus said. And of course, we must recognize as Christians that every generation prior to us has observed the current calamities of their moment and said, obviously, the end is drawing nigh. Now, things could go on for another 2,000 years after this sermon. We literally don't know, but what you and I must know and what we must acknowledge and the way that Jesus expected us to live was as if this new world order was closer than the chaos that we exist in. And I can tell you, Monday morning, I prayed more earnestly for the return of the king than I have in a long time. And as I've sat trying to make my way through the imagery of what's happening in this world right now, I have found myself saying, please, Jesus, come quickly. What's happening in your bodies as we talk about the return of Jesus? Just check in there a little bit. Resistance, resonance, skepticism, cynicism, hope, joy, maybe all above. This complicated cocktail that is this idea that God is going to return and establish his rule on earth. Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, friends, as Christians, they left no room for us to live this lackadaisical sort of unawareness of the coming of the kingdom of God. In fact, it was to be at the forefront of every decision that we make and every interpretation that we make of everything that's happening in this world. The New Testament Christians, from the very beginning, and we are no less called to the same, lived in light of heaven coming to earth. And so at the very least, all of us need to recognize today that we are one day closer to the than we were yesterday. Right now, we are one minute closer to the literal physical return and the establishment of the kingdom of God than we were two seconds ago. Now, this grand truth, this somewhat on the fringes and on the margins of our minds truth, was at the very heartbeat of Jesus' instructions in prayer when he said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is not just a little throwaway sentence there. This section of the Our Father is Jesus' capstone on the first half of the prayer. You'll note that in the first half of the prayer, these first few verses, we don't really ask anything from God. We have not asked for provision. We have not asked for forgiveness. We have not asked for deliverance from the evil one or to be guarded from temptation. The first half of the prayer orients ourselves to God and who he is and how he's going to provide and protect. When God's name is finally and fully revered and made famous, hallowed, then heaven infiltrates earth. When God's rule through his kingdom is complete in the heart of all of us and all of humanity, heaven will literally consume all earthly kingdoms. When God's will is done across the cosmos, heaven and earth become one. And so, this week, as we meditate on praying on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for God's fame and God's reign and God's way to pervade every square inch of this physical creation. Now, Jesus' capstone instruction here at the midpoint of the Our Father is actually the summation. He's actually summarizing the central focus of the entirety of the Bible. When we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking God to bring to completion something that he began 
let me uh, clear back at the very beginning, from the moment of the fall, God began to seek to restore heaven to earth. It's the central theme. It's the big idea of the entirety of the Bible. And so when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for God to do what he has been doing for millennia in full. And I want to propose to you that most of us have lost this central theme in the way that we think about heaven on earth, in the way that we think about how Christianity unfolds. I want to try to dispel for us probably the most common myth pervading the modern collective Christian imagination. Namely, here's the myth. The goal of Christianity, this is a myth, this is, this is folktale, this is wrong. The goal of Christianity is to escape this physical place and live eternally in a separate spiritual place away from earthly, tangible, touchable creation. Here's the big myth. Let me say it in a very, very provocative way to get you all to lean in. When we die, we go to heaven. That is a Christian myth. <laughs> I hope I've got all your ears now. Do I have all your ears? Have I freaked some of you out? I hope I've garnered enough trust from most of you that you'll walk with me through this, okay? Let's do a little thought experiment. And let's just back and forth, okay? Fun day, little dialogue, okay? When you think of heaven, what comes to your mind? Just shout something out. When you think of heaven, what comes to mind? Angels. What? Angels. angels? What do the angels look like, Rebecca? These little cherubs. Oh, these cute little naked babies. Why are they What else do you think of? Clouds. There's clouds. What else? Light. Light. It's light. Gold. Gold. Oh, yeah, gold. Of course there's gold in heaven. A sea of glass. Huh? Sea of glass. Sea of glass. I don't even know what that would look like, but it's amazing. (laughs) So we've got some Bible references. We've got naked babies. I always think of, like, we've got got St. Peter and St. Paul, you know, telling, I don't know, telling Jesus jokes at the pearly gates, whatever it is. Consciousness, the collective imagination of Christian people. That imagery, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really sourced in medieval paintings from a thousand years ago in, a, in an illiterate culture that was creating, unintentionally, I believe, folk tale theology that was then passed on through the oral traditions right up to this moment here in 2023. So that now you have this entrenched imagination of naked babies and clouds and people and harps and robes. And some of that is drawn from the book of Revelation, but interpreted wrongly and applied wrongly. And here's the deal, friends. We're responsible for this. You and I have more access to more master teachers, brilliant theologians, more Bible studies than we know what to do with. But we modern Christians, we have continued to perpetuate this folktale theology of escaping this earthly place to hang out with St. Paul and Peter in our white robes, play some harps, tell some funny Jesus jokes, and hang out with these little naked babies with wings. It's, it, is, it is a misnomer that I think is actually damaging to the church, and it's damaging to the way that we pray. We've cemented this into our collective imagination. And what has resulted in this is that you and I unconsciously, and I want to, I want to put a, a, a I want to put something that's going to break this today, deeply break this. We are not to hold some escapist mentality that whisks us all off of the earth into heaven, leaving this fallen world and creation and its inhabitants to burn while we play our harps. 
alchemic base. That is maybe one of the most unbiblical things, one of the most unbiblical ways that we could possibly pray. This escapist departure from physicality, it is foreign to the Bible and it is foreign to Jesus himself. So, let's ask this question as we continue our journey through our time together this morning. What is heaven and where do we go when we die? What is the central theme of the biblical story telling us about heaven and earth? I was very tempted to just sit here and lecture for, and I need you guys to give me two hours to walk us through the biblical story. I can't do that. So one of my professors, Tim Mackey, started the Bible Project. Absolutely, probably one of the most influential Hebrew teachers on the planet right now. The Bible Project takes these videos and explains things that I would like to lecture on for two hours in five minutes. So instead of lecturing, I want to show you guys one of the very first Bible Project videos that uh, Tim and John put out, and it will explain what I'm getting at, and then we'll come back. Okay? Are we good? Let's watch this little video. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature. But here's what's really interesting, is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy, because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart, and about so let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth are completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwell together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things in a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world perfect. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a clear distinction. So you said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like a hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness of the result. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. 
animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reunited. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now this word dwelling is really curious. Literally it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talking about as being the temple, he's also talking about as being sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited by animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die. But that is not the focus of the Bible story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. All right, everybody got it? So I just want to recap some of that and, and then really emphasize one facet of it that I, uh, that in a five-minute video just could not be capitalized on. So the four categories, you have Adam and Eve and paradise. God's space and heavenly space. You have God's space and human space dwelling together in a place called uh, paradise. Um, I would also say that this may be a bomb for some of you. We need to redo our conceptions of perfection in the Garden of Eden because there's already an evil talking snake. So some, something's wrong already at the Garden of Eden. There's already something off. There's also some key phrases in there that were to go out and multiply, be fruitful, and subdue. Subdue is a 
your word. So from the very beginning of the Bible, we have to undo some of our collective imagination about who Adam and Eve were, what the garden actually was. But primarily, thematically, it was the intersection of heaven and earth, God's space and human space. Now, as the evil snake deceived Eve and Adam, they were separated from that space. And the rest of the Bible, as they said, is the story of God laboring to reunite heaven and earth. So then we get to Israel and the temple. Some of the pieces that the video didn't pick up on is in each space of the tabernacle and the temple, they make the temple with the imagery of the Garden of Eden within the tabernacle and then within the temple later under King Solomon. And at the completion of the tabernacle and at the completion of the temple, what falls? Does anybody remember? Spirit falls. And what's the form of the spirit? Fire. Fire and clouds. And we're actually told that in the tabernacle moment, Moses can't go in. And we're told that the Solomonic moment, the moment when Solomon's temple is finished, we're told that the priests, there was so much glory of the Lord filling the temple that they literally could not go in. So we still have this complex issue in the biblical narrative. There's these spaces where heaven space and earth space, God's space and human space is supposed to come together, but then the humans still can't go into it. We're still aching. We're still looking. And all of this imagery, the sacrifices of the temples, the Garden of Eden, the presence of the tabernacles, all of these things were pointing to Jesus. As they said, Jesus declared himself to be the tabernacle, the temple among us in human form, the meeting space. Jesus, God among us in human form, claimed to be the living, breathing temple, the intersection between heaven and earth. And Jesus, going to the cross, also became the sacrificial animal that would make the way for us to go into the heaven-earth space and not be destroyed by the holiness of God. So Jesus dies, goes into the grave, and resurrects. And what we have in the resurrected body of Jesus is a forerunner. It's a picture of what you and I will be when we resurrect, literally from our graves. Literally the reuniting of heaven and earth through death, conquered by Jesus, we will resurrect in these new bodies. Jesus' resurrection body, everybody remember, was not a naked little baby floating around with wings. By the way, did you guys know that there's no place in the Bible where angels have wings? I don't really know where that came from. The image of a man with wings being an angel, that's an amalgam of some Ezekiel imagery and some Isaiah imagery, all mixed up through oral tradition. Okay? Everybody got that? I know I'm wrecking a lot of paradigms this morning. Jesus's, Jesus's resurrected body was able to walk through walls, which I can't wait to be able to do that. That's going to be cool. Uh, he was also still bearing the scars of his crucifixion. He would instantaneously disappear and be transported somewhere else in his resurrection body, but he also ate fish, which I'm excited about. We're still going to be able to eat food in these resurrected bodies. But that leads to you and me and the church. You and me and the church. Now, chat with this. Acts chapter 2, Luke is recording the history of the beginning of the church. On the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jesus has now gone fully into the heaven space to await the establishment of heaven on earth. And we have all been trained that that will happen when Jesus physically returns. And in this interim space, we're just kind of gritting our teeth, tightening up our belts, and waiting until we can escape this place. Myth. Wrong. F. That's an F. No. We want to get an A in our biblical studies. Did that sound bad? That probably sounded really bad. Everybody kind of squirmed Like an F on the test. Like, like yeah, get an F. Yeah. You got a grade of an F. <laughs> <laughs> on the day of Pentecost, track of this, what happens? We have a group of people, they're in a space waiting for God, praying. And what comes? 
the exact same thing that came on the temple, the exact same thing that came on the tabernacle, fire, tongues of fire. And the church is marked as becoming the new temple, the new dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus was the living, breathing, walking tabernacle, going around blessing and bringing little spots of the kingdom of earth, or kingdom of heaven on earth, we now, the church, are filled with the Holy Spirit. Fire comes, and we go about just like Jesus did as living temples. You and I this morning are the intersecting point of heaven and earth. Your heart with Christ dwelling in you, we together in this room right now, we together with millions of other communities across the globe who have trusted and obeyed Jesus as master and Lord, we are the inbreaking, the beginnings of heaven's restoration on earth. This is why Paul would tell the Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst, us together, yet all plural, together. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. He would also go on and say 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body, soma, these physical bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you receive from God. You are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. And so Paul says, be careful, friends, with God's church. Be careful about what you say and do to this community. God dwells in this place. I think there needs to be, on the cusp of renewal and revival in God's church, a new reverential, sacred fear and honoring of the church. I'm tired of people beating up on the church with our language and our pessimism and our judgments. For revival to come, you, dear one, must recognize that you are the dwelling place of the holy God on this planet. And so speak carefully. Speak with love and tenderness and truth. Do what builds and guards and protects this gathering in this place because this is the overlap. Right here in this little auditorium in the middle of San Diego is an overlap of heaven and earth where we gather collectively. This is also why this is the motivation, friends. When we pursue generosity, when we seek equality, and we read within our giving liturgy, we want no unequal, we want no unequal place in this room. We want equality and justice and dignity in our midst, and then we take that equality and longing for justice and equality and generosity and all those things, we take that out to our neighbors, it's because we are now the moving tabernacle of the presence of God, going out bringing little hotspots of the kingdom of God. At one point when I was teaching on this years ago, I called it, we're like food trucks of God's presence. You know, you have restaurants that you have to go to, then you got food trucks that can go wherever they want. We are food trucks of God's kingdom, going around and doling out goodness and generosity and blessing. Does that all make sense? It's also, friends, this is why we're careful with our bodies. What you do with this physical body matters. What you say with this physical body matters. Where you go with this physical body matters. The moral codes and the points of restraint and self-control called for in Christian behavior, those are not rules designed to crush all of our fun. They are actually expressions, moments of expressing heaven in our bodies, which leads to ultimately, truly, our highest happiness and greatest flourishing. I refer you back to last week's teaching. And so, as we pray on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for God's church, that's us, and our bodies to rightly reflect the character, wisdom, beauty, and goodness of God in and through us as a means of restoring heaven on earth. This week, when you go into your classrooms and into your workplace, 
workplaces and into your spheres of influence, you carry with you the fires of God's presence and you are the intersecting space between heaven and earth in your body. And if there's a couple other Christians in the room, there's a temple present right there at the job, at the water cooler, in the classroom. That's that's so hope-giving to me. It reinitiates this longing for mission and anointing and power and boldness and gospel risk. Instead of, just get me out of here. I want out of here. Alongside millions and millions of other communities, we now carry forth the kingdom of God. And I want to suggest to you that this may shift, this paradigm shift may may help some of your pain and frustration. Because when we begin to pray, let heaven come to earth in this biblical sense, it means that we stop looking for the escape route, the easy way out. When we begin to pray, let heaven come to earth, we acknowledge that God has given you I, the gracious responsibility, you and I together bear the mantle of heavenly responsibility for the formation of our souls in the likeness of heaven in obedience to the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of the apostolic writers and authors of the New Testament, and we also have the mantle of responsibility to form our cities and our spheres of influence and to be that intersecting space between heaven and earth. This is what St. Peter would say to us this morning. His divine power, think fire coming from heaven into your soul into your body and into this place has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires for this very reason. So you have heaven on earth in you, then Paul says it, and then, excuse me, then Peter says, now work that out of you, your whole life. Make it your life's aim to investigate, be self-aware, be in community, be in scripture, be in church, and acknowledge this heavenly indwelling reality for this very reason. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, mutual affection, mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Though our bodies will die, though our bodies, these physical bodies will die, just like Jesus' physical body died, our hope is that we will resurrect in physical, literal bodies. This is what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It's raised in spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. I want to just say to you pastorally that this has become more pointed in my life through this past week with injuries and pictures from the Middle East. Even this morning in prayer, I just saw this image of a little Palestinian girl that I'd seen in one of the news feeds being carried. I saw all the body bags of little tiny infants. I saw children in hospitals. I saw grandmothers and then I saw each of them healing over time. It wasn't like a miraculous healing. It was like over time they were healing. And then I saw resurrection. And it was like, I don't want to say that there was no pain and no burden and no anger at the wrong that's happening. But there was this sense of like innocence. Innocence will rise because the innocence of Jesus absorbed the wrong that all of us have done in innocence. And we have Palestinian and we 
have Israeli Christian brothers and sisters that we are to be praying for in earnest. Church, we navigate, I recognize that as, this, as the trauma and the horrific nature of what's happening right now unfolds, the political left and political right conversations, I, I, I exhort you. I encourage you as a Christian to take up the mediating type of space in those conversations. I don't know how, but I know that the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom in those moments. With people who are going to be proclaiming things that in my mind sound absolutely insane. On both sides. On both sides. And so we take up that mediating place of heaven on earth. Here's how Jesus would pray. Here's what Jesus wants in this. And we pray that down here. So as we close now, I'll come to communion. Let's go back to this because I don't want to be guys hanging on this. When we die, where do we go? When we die, where do we go? If the final resurrection hasn't occurred, we haven't received these spiritual Jesus-like bodies yet, where do we go? Is, it, is that the time? Is that the time where we go off to the clouds and the naked babies and all that stuff? Absolutely not. Obviously not. Here's the deal. As with almost everything in the Bible, stuff that we thought was super clear, it's actually not that super clear at all. The Bible is not very clear exactly with what happens after we directly die in this life. It's not super clear. It, there's not a lot that's actually set on it. It's actually very cloudy and very mysterious. We have these little, we have these little snippets, these little things like Paul says these things like in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, hey, don't worry about those who sleep and who are asleep. So he refers to death, the, the body that has died as sleeping in this waiting process. Um, uh, Jesus on the cross literally said to the two thieves, to the one who professed faith and said, I'll follow you, to that particular thief, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in par paradiso, uh, paradise, which is a, it's an echo of the garden. Jesus basically said, today we're going back to the garden of Eden. I wish that he would have said that. And that means this, but he didn't. What does that mean? And we can get into the metaphysics of timelessness and time and all that fun stuff. You guys can do that at community group. It's a mystery. It is a mystery where we go after we die. Paul talked about actually being caught up to different levels of heaven. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he just says, I knew this guy. He was caught up to the, to the third heaven. And he saw stuff that he couldn't talk about. And I'm like, great, Paul, why are you even saying this thing? Because it stirs more questions than, than anything. Here, here, here's what we do know. There's a great mystery, but what we do know is that when we die, the Christian in Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, is with Jesus somehow. There is this withness, there is this, there is this presence, there is this, all the stuff that we think of as heaven, it is that, but it's not in the way that we think of it as naked babies and dudes with wings and all, all the stuff that we think that heaven is. It's this grand mystery, and it's not the end. Death is not the end. Death and escaping to this disembodied state, it is not the end. It is not what the biblical story is going after. The biblical story is going after what Tom Wright, theologian Tom Wright, calls life after life after death. Life after life after death. Life after life after death. Because after this interim state where Jesus has come, 
He has died. He's been buried. He has resurrected. Through this interim space, this time of the church, where these you and I, these tiny little temples, we are responsible to go out into the world to the best of our ability and manifest the kingdom of God through our obedience, through our prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit. People are dying all along the way. As we go, you and I may die in maybe another 2,000 years before the reestablishment of the kingdom of God on earth through the return of Jesus Christ. That may go on for another 2,000 years. We will go to be with the Lord, but at some point, you are going to raise from the dead. You are going to live in something that is that is spiritual, but holy other. It will be touchable. These kids, I am utterly convinced, who are innocently being wounded and dying, will raise from the dead. What I'm trying to get you to see is when you look at horrific suffering, when you look at horrific pain, if we don't have this in front of us, it's, it's crushing. But if we do have this in front of us, it's the ultimate hope. It's the ultimate in joy. And of course, we close with John the Revelator who comes and says that one day when Jesus returns and the resurrection fully happens, then this heavenly city, which is a garden city with two trees. Now there's not just one tree, but now there's two trees. And on each side, they have leaves for the healing of the nations. And this river of love and life flows through it. This morning, Sarah actually saw, you know, the voice of the blood speaks better than the Hebrews. And Sarah saw, you know, blood basically covering us this morning. But then this river of wine flowing through us and, and this delight and joy. All this imagery is designed to, to, to make you a little more buoyant this week. To not make absence the pain and suffering of our lives, to not make absence the, the hurt and the wounded that we see in this world right now, but to help us to see that even through it there is a great hope being established this week through you. Not someday when, this week, today, you are the intersection of heaven and earth. When you go to get your taco stand burrito and you walk in there, I'm the fire of God in this place. <laughs> when you walk into a classroom tomorrow morning and you sit down and, and there you are with your classroom, you are the fires of God in that place. When we gather like this, when you gather with your community group to talk about the nature of timelessness and how does going back to the garden work at the death of Jesus and the thieves and you get into all the metaphysics of it and you think you've got it all figured out, that right there is just pouring on the bonfire of the temple of his presence and his spirit. The invitation to us this week, our Father, who is in heaven, hallow his name, your kingdom come, his rule, your will be done, his way, on earth as it is in heaven. Christians, take up your responsibility this week. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you radical heavenly boldness and risk. This world, this new world order that's coming around, this disarray, this chaos, it is going to continue to cannibalize and collapse. And what will be left are the people of God and the kingdom of God. And we stand, we stand in the center here, not to just wait to escape and let it all burn, but we are rescuers. We are, we are the people sent, like Jesus was sent. This is the final thing I'll say as I come to communion. Jesus had to go to the cross to make the clean spaces intersect heaven and earth, correct? This is why he told us to pick up our own crosses. We should expect that as we go in and absorb the wounds of the world around us, that there's going to be pain and suffering that we have to endure for the sake of bringing heaven on earth this week. So be bold. Be courageous. Stand firm. Be strong. Pray earnestly. 
wake up in the morning and have your heavenly times of quiet time and silence and solitude and rest in the presence of God and then do your emails as an act of worship and work as an act of worship. Father, we yield it to you now and in this time of worship we ask that there would be continued awakening I pray for the saints of God represented in this room and across our city this morning as we all gather around this same similar time. The kingdom of God, the temple of God here in San Diego. That this morning the fire would be just a little brighter. That the hope would just be a little deeper. That a sense of joy and responsibility would be placed on your people to protect your church. To walk purely in our bodies as best as we can to walk in the forgiveness of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and to extend that. My God and King, I pray for wisdom myself and I pray for wisdom in words and silence where silence is needed as the conversations become more heated in the political cycles that are about to unfold in the next couple years in this moment of disorientation and new world order and multipolarism. May we be a stable, non-anxious presence to this week. Fire fire from heaven on us, in us, through us. I just keep having this image of like, you guys remember, how many of you guys have seen E.T. real quick? E.T.? Is it, okay, the little glowing finger? I literally see you guys like going into your places of responsibility and you just reach out your little glowing finger of fire. Touch, touch, touch. A community of pastors and priests and prophets. That's what the church is. Lord Jesus, bless now our time of communion. Remind us what it took to reunite heaven and earth. May we not dishonor you in any way. May we receive it. May we receive it by faith in Jesus' name.